I am Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Within the larger framework of the Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective, this season's forums are dedicated to the theme of building a civil society. Today's speaker is a major voice on the need to create a more civil society and world than the one which we have inherited from our various colonial and ideological histories. In a world fractured by racial and religious hatred and misunderstanding, Rajmahan Gandhi has established an international reputation as a spiritual leader in the tradition of his grandfather, Mahatma Gandhi. He is known across India as an author and journalist and as a politician of great courage and integrity. In 1975, Mr. Gandhi was arrested for opposing on principle the emergency rule imposed by former Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. But though he is a man of integrity and of courage, Rajmahan Gandhi, like his grandfather, is a gentle voice in a world filled with the noise of strident voices. He is best known as a peacemaker representing the Hindu religious faith, seeking understanding among peoples of different religions and cultures. In 1991, he joined the Roman Catholic Cardinal of the Philippines and the Secretary General of the World Muslim Congress at an international dialogue in Japan designed to bring together leaders of the great faiths of Asia in order to address the spiritual dimension of Asian development. Today, he has traveled from New Delhi, India, to encourage our spiritual and moral development here in America. Mr. Gandhi is a widely published author, including a study of Hindu-Muslim relations over the last 150 years, a past Woodrow Wilson Fellow, as well as guest professor at George Mason University in Virginia. He is currently research professor at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi, where he lives with his wife, Usha, and their two children. Mr. Gandhi comes to the Town Hall Forum as an example of the Forum's pursuit of a more civil society and world. His topic for today is today's lost certainties. Can the troubled citizen do anything? Please welcome to the Town Hall Forum, Mr. Rajmahan Gandhi. Pastor Gordon Stewart and dear friends, it is a joy for me to be back in the Twin Cities only 10 months ago, I was standing in St. Paul, also under the Presbyterian umbrella, speaking at the House of Hope. To be with all of you here, sharing this space, as sacred as it is beautiful, is a privilege. Reflecting on lost certainties, I recall an English friend, Lionel Jardine, who was one of the guardians in India of the British Empire. I am an impeccable imperialist, used to be his proud boast at one time. Jardine, who served in India for 30 years 
and died in England at a ripe age, was certain for a good part of his life that Asians and Africans needed the guiding hand of Englishmen like him. And he thanked God for the goodness of Englishmen like him for being willing to rule over and live in a country like India, which was far away and hot and disease prone. His certainty about Britain's divine right to, to rule over other countries clashed, however, with another certainty that he carried in his bosom, which was about the equal worth of all of God's sons and daughters. Finally, a time came when Jardine went one by one to some of his Indian subordinates and apologized to them for having felt superior to them. A boss apologizing to his inferiors, a white ruler apologizing to Indians. The news reached my grandfather Mahatma Gandhi, who while believing in the possibility of a change of heart, was seasoned enough not to believe everything he heard. He asked two close friends of his, living in India's northwest frontier province, where Jardine was a senior official, to check the story. They confirmed it, and a Gandhi who was both surprised and pleased announced that the story was indeed true. By the time he died in his 80s, Jardine had lost several certainties about the virtues of imperialism, the vision of a British empire extending far into the future, the superiority of the British over Asians and Africans, and doubtless over others as well. The story of Lionel Jardine is, among other things, a story of lost certainties. In similar or different ways, so is the story of most of us, who our friends are, whom to trust, what to believe, what hopes and dreams to nurse in our hearts, what goal to strive for. To such questions, our answers seem to change over the years. And sometimes, our disappointed and disillusioned heart returns the reply, trust no one and strive for nothing. Mahatma Gandhi, too, traveled down that disturbing road where beliefs fall by the wayside. One of his certainties was that India would find freedom and remain united. Yet freedom saw India split into two. Another conviction of his was that India would show how people of different religions and ethnicities can live in peace and partnership. He saw that certainty shattered. He saw slaughter and bloodshed in the last year of his life. What he felt at the repudiation of his hopes and certainties and how he responded may be of interest. He said, I can't bear it. I don't wish to be a witness to these things. Remove me, O God, or help me to change things. Yet I cry, he added, not my will, but thine alone shall prevail. Again he said, I am in a sad plight, yet there is God's help, as I find each day. I retain my faith. He added, I have just a handful of bones in my body, but my heart belongs to me. So do your hearts belong to you. Another time he said, when someone commits a crime somewhere, I feel I am the culprit. Our normal response to the kind of killings that confronted Gandhi is to ask who was killed, their man or our man? If it was our man, then our response is we must hit back and hit hard. Or this is no place for me, I exercise my right to leave. Refusing to take sides, identifying alike with victim and attacker, and rejecting the strongest temptation to quit. Gandhi focused on the relief and reconciliation that was needed. 
and he continued to believe that tomorrow if not today, and day after tomorrow if not tomorrow, human beings would live as brothers and sisters. Because he was willing to attempt a repair, his faith survived the shattering of his dreams and an exodus of his certainties. Though life was hurtful and traumatic, it still held a meaning and offered a purpose. A core of faith survived the blasting of hopes. Though my friend Lionel Jardine had lost his certainties about the empire and Britain's divine right to rule, he too, like my grandfather, attempted a repair. And his faith in a long-term partnership between Britons and Indians, Europeans and Asians, survived the trauma of the struggles for decolonization. His apologies to his Indian subordinates were part of his striving to put things right, build bridges and restore relationships. I saw that this was a striving that lasted until his death, showing the triumph of faith despite the loss of certainties. If I may speak of myself, I was 21, comfortably placed for a possible career in journalism, but without a purpose for my life when, following chance encounters with some people, I found a goal and a fellowship. Along with some wonderful people that I had run into, I would work to build new men, new nations, a new world under God. That was our phrase at the time. I cannot pretend that we said new women and new men, or even new men and new women. But we meant both men and women. Certainties soon followed. India would become clean, strong, and united. That was my phrase and my belief. When I was 27, about 75 of us presented that certainty to hundreds of thousands as we traveled about 3,500 miles from India's southernmost tip to the country's eastern corner and thence to New Delhi, in the north of India, halting in dozens of places along the way. I felt too that India and Pakistan would become friends, and I believed that empty hands would be filled with work, empty stomachs with food, and empty heads with an idea that really satisfies. This last was not my phrase, but that of an American, Frank Bookman, who had inspired the people who had inspired me. I adopted the phrase and believed in it. Almost 40 years later, the goals remain distant. Rightly or wrongly, I no longer say that they will soon be achieved. I minus some of the certainties with which I traveled in my youth to many parts of the world, including, let me say, the twin cities of Minnesota and St. Paul. This is the truth, yet it is also true that I pray for these goals still, strive for them in my weak ways, search for initiatives to carry us closer to the goals, and believe that in good time or the right time, they will be realized. And while many of my certainties have left me, and some opinions have changed, I retain my faith in a God who cares and is able, but whose schedule and strategy and tactics are his secret. With my grandfather, I can truthfully say that while I'm often in a sad plight, yet there is God's help as I find each day. Most of the time, this help seems tiny, trivial even, and hopelessly inadequate when matched against the evil and the sadness that assail our lives. Also, while this help comforts and encourages me for some time and moves and inspires me, it does not wholly destroy the powerful unbelief that is also part of me. I require new doses of help. Amazingly, these fresh inputs never stop coming, and they enable me to keep going. 
And each time I obtain a fresh dose, I feel for some moments at least that I, even I, mere me, can look down at the mountain of evil and sadness before me, look down at the large hill of my own weaknesses and blunders. I may not be much more than some bones, though I am also, as my children sometimes point out, a fair amount of fat. Yet, my heart is mine still, and capable of faith and confidence and a sense of ultimate victory. There are some certainties that I was glad to lose. If my friend Lionel Jardine was once certain of British superiority, I used to be sure that I understood other Indians better than any outsider could. Until one day in Bombay 37 years ago, a Scottish friend of mine called Andrew Mackay, with whom I had just completed a taxi ride, said to me that the cab driver had reminded him of his father. He looked like my dad, said Andrew. I did not know what to think. How could that old driver, with his dark skin, pinched face, irregular beard, and frayed shirt, be like the father of Andrew, when Andrew was red-haired, quite bald, with a skin as white as it was smooth, and impeccably dressed? Andrew saw the disbelief on my face, and then his eyes moistened. Watching Andrew, my eyes cleared. I realized that Andrew had seen more than a kinsman, sorry, I realized that Andrew had seen more than a likeness. He had felt a kinship, and that it was I, the ardent Indian, to whom both the red-haired Scotsman and my ragged compatriots were strangers. I saw that sensitivity had nothing to do with nationality or race or appearance. Had I not learned to discard it, my belief in my special link with my people, as I thought of them, could have become a stepping stone to a belief in good and bad peoples or in sound and flawed races, or in nations that are inherently healthy and others that are inherently sick. This view, held more widely than we would like to believe, gets nourishment from our inability to separate the attitudes or policies of some individuals from the people they're supposed to represent or resemble. So we may dislike Jews because of Judas, Germans because of Hitler, the Japanese because of Pearl Harbor. We need not lament or arrest the erosion of such certainties. What about our faith in yesterday's great figures? I cannot say that I am thrilled when their shortcomings or mistakes are used to deny a greatness that can yet inspire us. We must welcome the light of truth. Truth never damaged anything that was worth preserving or protecting. And no great person really suffers when his or her imperfections are observed. At times, however, it is denigration that wears the mask of investigative history. We tear heroes from their context and graft them onto today's circumstances, ignoring the pulls of their times. I don't mind glimpses of the clay feet of the great. They tell me that even I, with my shaky and crumbling feet, may do something useful. But I object to smoke screens being set up to hide the courage of heart and the stamina of soul of heroic men and women who came and went before us. The truth is that a part of us dislikes the idea of personal endeavor, the idea that individuals can make a difference. Denigration enables us to be more comfortable with our drift or indecision in face of a challenge. During the Cold War days, we were sure of names and addresses. We knew who the enemy was and who the friend. We knew where the great society was and where the evil empire. That age has gone. 
We could not have imagined it would go as soon as it did or so easily. Along with communism, our certainties too have gone. But I wonder whether we have learned our lessons or understood what the essence of communism was. Was it state control of business? Even in the US, your currency, the dollar bills, are still, as far as I know, printed by the state. In India and in many countries, the railways are still owned by the state. Are all these nations, therefore, that much communistic? I do not think so. The heart of communism did not lie in the government's control over business, or in the global network of spies that was organized from the Kremlin, or in the fearsome array of the missiles and bombs of the former Soviet Union, or in the countless divisions of China's Red Army. It lay in the hardcore, bottom-line belief spelt out by Karl Marx that the problem in the world and in my neighborhood was the product of a selfish class of people. They created it. I was all right. Evil was not in me. Anything wrong was not in me. It was in landlords, capitalists, imperialists, Americans, but not in me. Even if I happen to be a landlord or capitalist or imperialist or an American, born into a family of such, I could be saved if I stood up and denounced the class enemies into whose ranks I was born. Denunciation washed me. Husbands denounced wives, children sent parents to the execution squad. Denunciation saved them. But long before Marx, when denouncers wanted to stone a woman, they were told that he who was without guilt was to throw the first stone. No one threw anything, the denouncers melted away. Though I never met her, I will always carry respect and admiration for an American woman, Mary McLeod Bethune, a daughter of slaves who became advisor to presidents and educator to thousands. Meeting two of her descendants meant something to me. She said, the true battle line in the world is not between class and class, or race and race, or nation and nation. It is drawn in every heart between good and evil. Bethune met Marx head on. She refused to say that only slave owners and their descendants were wrong. She spoke of a line that crossed every heart, including the heart of a descendant of slaves, obliging everyone to choose between good and evil in their own lives, as well as in the world around them. Bethune did not think that evil was confined to one race or to rulers in the Kremlin or to the Russian or Chinese nations. Had she been living when the Soviet Union collapsed, she would have retained her certainties, her bearings on the altered map. We have lost the certainties because we missed the lesson. We thought they were bad and we were good. We were never quite sure what they or them meant. Sometimes it meant the communists, sometimes the rulers of the Soviet Union, and occasionally, when we were not thinking, we even imagined all the Russians as them. And what about the uncertainties of the people who lived for decades under the Soviet regime? Very few of them believed the communist rhetoric. The faith of the vast majority was in the salvation that freedom would bring. There was faith, too, in the wonders that the West would bring to their shattered economies. These hopes, sustained under terror, have largely been dashed. The shock of lost certainties has perhaps been greater in the countries liberated from communism than anywhere else. The end of oppression has not seen the start of joy. Starving or shivering in Siberia, 
they yearned and prayed for deliverance. Miraculously, deliverance did come, though not before millions perished. But the hunger for peace, order, and well-being in the former Soviet Union remains. Though I've been able to make visits to East Europe and the former Soviet Union, I do not feel qualified to speak much about those regions and peoples. It is clear, however, that many there bought the line that any initiative for good or ill belongs somewhere else, with someone else, if not with the capitalists or the Western powers, as their leaders claimed, then with their leaders. Cruel realities seemed to teach this lesson. Two or three generations of whole nations felt that their own lives did not matter and could affect nothing, create nothing. They had no voice, the rulers had no limits. The citizens' ingenuity was devoted solely to survival. What they needed was not just liberation from their communist rulers, though they needed that desperately, but also an awareness of their worth and responsibilities as individuals. They needed a focus on themselves, on their own hearts, as Mary McLeod Bethune might have said. They did not see this, and we did not see this either. Hence, the all-round shock at the failure of freedom to spell joy. Meanwhile, much of the free world seems to go along with the view that we are free to do what we want, when we want, the way we want, and with the related belief that we are basically all right, that anything wrong around us is the fault of someone else or perhaps of an unfortunate or incorrigible racial group. If I'm all right is indeed the universal philosophy in our nations, then we have to ask who really won and who lost the Cold War. Anxious for the good old days of friends who could be relied upon and foes whose enmity was dependable, some are strongly tempted to cast the Islamic world into the role of the enemy or at any rate of the other. Islamic lands are undemocratic, they don't give freedom to women, their punishments are barbaric, their religious or ethnic minorities are discriminated against or persecuted. Each statement may be true for one or more Islamic lands. However, it may also apply to some non-Muslim countries. And we have to reckon with the insistence of a sequence of scholars of Islam, including several who are not Muslim, that Islam is nobler and more compassionate than is conveyed by its fanatics. When, in addition to this, we remember that unlike communism, which denied God, Islam is founded on faith in him and on an acceptance of man's inadequacy. When we recall the courage with which many Muslims defied communism and with which many of them are today standing up to fundamentalism, the notion of Islam as a suitable enemy for all of us sounds bizarre indeed. The boundaries between Islamic and Western or Christian nations can no doubt be turned into battle lines, but they can also become highways of discovery for both sides. As for the battle line, I return to Mary McLeod Bethune and want to recognize it first of all in my heart. Allow me to relate something that happened in my heart in relation to Islam. As everyone knows, Islam is a crucial factor in my part of the world, tension between the Hindus and Muslims of the Indian subcontinent, and between India and Pakistan can affect a wider area. Though my grandfather died for Hindu-Muslim and India-Pakistan friendship, I was exposed as a boy to a climate of hostility between India and Pakistan. I was 16 when in 1951, three years after my grandfather had been killed, I opened the door of our apartment in New Delhi 
to a journalist of the Hindustan Times, the newspaper that my father was editing. Our apartment was on the top floor of the building that housed the offices and printing press of the newspaper. The journalist was carrying a sheet hot off the teleprinter to show to my father. I read it. Flash, it said. Liaquat Ali Khan, Prime Minister of Pakistan, has been shot at. More to follow. I looked at the journalist for a couple of seconds and said, I hope what follows is news of his death. I had never met Liaquat Ali Khan. He had done me no injury, but he was Pakistan's Prime Minister, and I thought a manly remark like the one I made was called for and bound to evoke a smile of agreement. But the journalist did not smile, and I was left feeling small, conscious of my indiscretion and the vanity and ill will that caused it. Later, much later, I have to admit, I realized that my knowledge of the Muslims of India and Pakistan and of Islam was extremely limited and in places quite erroneous. I did not know, for instance, that the Quran disapproved of compulsion in religion or that it spoke of God sending prophets to all nations and peoples. The only remedy was to study something of Islam and the lives and impulses of the Muslims of the subcontinent. The result was my book, Eight Lives, A Study of the Hindu-Muslim Encounter, in which I tried to understand and depict the lives and thoughts of eight of the subcontinent's prominent Muslims of the previous 150 years. I wrote it primarily for Hindus like me, who thought they knew the world of Islam, but in fact did not. Yet, by God's grace, the book has meant something to Muslims as well, as well and has placed some precious, if slender, bamboos across what continues to be a dangerous gulf. And I had to pinch myself several times in February of last year, when on a visit I was able to make to Pakistan, I was interviewed on the book over Pakistan television at prime time. If a precarious bridge has been built, it started with my glimpse of what was wanting in me and an effort to do something about it. When I was in college in Delhi, the Indian capital, we were taught that the Soviet Union was the finest example of a solution of ethnic and nationalist tensions. But what was presented and painted as the surface of a calm lake was in fact a lid of granite, a heavy lid that pressed, compressed, and prepared for explosion dozens of ethnic furies. And I've long realized that if there is a country in the world that has built a nation beyond the bloodline, a nation beyond races, languages, and ethnic origin, it is certainly not the former Soviet Union, it is the United States of America. You had advantages, no doubt. Space for one thing, natural resources for another, and the fact that those who came here from far corners of the world left their histories behind them in the lands from which they came. Everyone began afresh in what to so many was a new world. Yet you were decisively helped by your forebears who reproduced a remarkable vision of a nation raised not out of common ancestors, but out of common values, among which were freedom and voluntary restraint. I must not draw a false picture. Everyone knows that in two crucial respects, the American story is painfully incomplete. The children of those who were here first and of those who were brought here in chains feel untouched by American hope and American pride. I wonder what the right word is for the quality of one who thinks, innovates, toils, 
and possibly prays until the last moment to keep a family or community going. The long word responsibility sometimes sounds frightening and care may sound sentimental. If love did not always remind us of its sensual meanings, and if we saw it as the greatest thing in the world, we could, of course, use that remarkable word. No matter the word we prefer, it is clear, I think, that a modern, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, freedom-loving community would have compelling power if its members were involved in creative concern for its continuing good health and growth. I was struck some months ago to be told by more than one American of Indian origin, people from my part of the world, that what this country had above all to offer a country like India was not technology but human relations. That is strong testimony. Yet it has to be asked why in recent years fundamentalisms and intolerances have continued to thrive in groups arriving in America from other parts of the world. As indicated before, there is another factor. The continuing sense among many African Americans and Native Americans that they cannot be enthusiastic about the seeming successes of the American experiment weakens the story that Americans can tell the world. Yet some aspects of an incomplete story may be more effective than any account of a perfect ending. And the bid by many Americans of all races to have an honest conversation on race, reconciliation, and responsibility has certainly moved and inspired me. Two years ago, I took part in one such conversation in the city of Richmond in Virginia, and in a unity walk that culminated it, taking all of us from a variety of races and nations past the physical sights of anguish, humiliation, and pride in the past. We acknowledged the past, we prayed for an ability to forgive it, and for the possibility of using the past to heal today's situations. If we found ourselves with a Hutu or a Tutsi whose children were killed before his or her eyes by people of the other tribe, what could we say? Every word, sound or gesture might seem out of place if not provocative. But if a son or daughter of those brought to America as slaves or the daughter or son of a dispossessed swept aside native of early America were to hold the hand of the Hutu or the Tutsi and say with the eyes, I understand, and convey a triumph over revenge, healing and hope might enter even that tortured African heart. Sixty years ago, meeting four African Americans in a hut in a small town in western India, my grandfather Gandhi said that it might be the blacks of America who would deliver the message of nonviolence to the world. The prophetic remark was made long before Martin Luther King Jr. and his colleagues streamed across America and across the pages of history. I am no prophet, but I can pray. And my prayer is that the Native Americans and African Americans may, along with other Americans, help sad and angry people all over the world to feel, with Mary McLeod Bethune, that the true battle line in the world is not between class and class or race and race or nation and nation, but between good and evil across every human heart. Early last May, a journalist in Fort Myers asked me how my faith was faring against the impact of the violence of the world. I answered, I faced setbacks and bitter disappointments, but I cannot think of a single day 
when I was not cheered by some act of courage or concern. Daily, by God's grace, and even when I feel I'm in a desert of despair, I found shoots of hope. And nothing seems to strengthen my faith more than when I myself take a step, small or large, in support of a bridge between humans. Often reflection or prayer suggests a step, or friends, associates, and family might. When I reflect, I realize that most of the certainties I have lost were wishes, longings, and desires. I retain my faith in the love of God and His mercy, and in His plan for all of us in the world. And while willing to leave the results and their timing to Him, I also want to be willing to heed with a sense of urgency the convictions He sends to my heart. I thank you for this chance to share something of my experience and understanding with all of you. Thank you, Mr. Gandhi. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church of downtown Minneapolis. Today's guest is Mr. Rajmohan Gandhi, who has just spoken on the subject, Today's Lost Certainties, Can the Troubled Citizen Do Anything? The verdict of the uh, O.J. Simpson case has brought the idea of a civil society to the fore and also the need, clearly, to have discussion about race in America. Those who celebrate Mr. Simpson's acquittal celebrate many times because they see Mr. Simpson's acquittal as a rare victory from a justice system that has rarely worked for African Americans. And those who are deeply disturbed by the acquittal believe that the justice system has failed in this case and lies in jeopardy. In either case, there is an underlying cynicism in both reactions which do not speak well, which does not speak well for the country's faith in the system of justice. What happens to a society which loses its faith in its system of justice, and how would you advise us at this point in time as to the discussion that needs to take place? I cannot advise the United States of America. <laughs> well, many of the rest of us try, so why don't you try uh, as well? It would be and, wonderful. We'd like to hear. Certainly, I have no advice on how to reform the system of justice, though it is clear that it needs to be reformed. Uh, you know, I've often gathered some news about the killings that take place almost every day in many of the inner city areas of the United States. And they also have many questions about the system of justice. But I would only like to say this, that those of us, and I don't know whether many of us here are involved with systems of justice, but we're all involved with human beings. And it is when trust has collapsed and fear or suspicion or anger or hatred has become the bond between individuals or between racial groups. I suppose that's the kind of situation 
that this great country is facing today. So I would want to build those bridges of trust that can overcome fear and suspicion and anger. Thank you for your response. One member of the audience asks, how can economic and social justice ever occur in this world with the predatory and exploitive practices of free market capitalism? Well, I was regarded as an expert in the justice system, and now I am the <laughs> economist. <laughs> um, well, I wish I could agree that the only people to blame were the capitalist free market predators. I'm afraid I cannot go along with that. I think there's a lot more to be done. I'm glad the questioner feels burns about the poverty in the world, but I'm not sure that anger solely directed at some alleged predators is going to reduce the poverty of our world. Perhaps this is a good follow-up to your answer to that question. One person says India is expected to have the largest population of any country in the world, even more than China, early in the next century. How can she possibly come close to feeding, clothing, and educating such an enormous number of people? I agree with that. I think our record in population management is dismally poor. It is a little better today than it was a year ago, and a little better a year ago than it was five years earlier. But it's still very poor. And, uh, well, we just have got to work harder at it and improve our performance. You have put your finger on a very real uh, problem. Thank you. A follow-up question one person asks, what is the present political situation in India in particular? What are the issues in this forthcoming election? Well, I'm very pleased that everybody in Minnesota is interested in Indian politics. <laughs> um, well, the Indian political situation is in a state of uncertainty as perhaps very uh, rarely before. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen, what is probably going to happen in the next general elections, which are due in the first quarter of 1996, is a hung parliament and a coalition government. So we will see how Indian politicians get on with one another and make satisfactory coalition arrangements. What are your thoughts on the Bosnian crisis, asks one person. Well, thank We're you. We're asking you for I, a lot of advice today, and this is... No, but I, uh, I think the Bosnian situation uh, is one example, of course, of the lid that I spoke of. Uh, many people used to say that former Yugoslavia you know, had uh, harmonized all these different groups, but that, of course, just was not true. And now we have this terrible reality. And um, it's easier, of course, to say what should not be done. And what should not be done is, is to think in terms of Christians versus um, Muslims or Serbs versus the rest. It's very tempting to say that the Muslims are the problem, or it's equally tempting to say the Serbs are the problem. I'm afraid I subscribe to neither. Obviously, what is needed is some kind of, of uh, reconciliation at various levels, and it's a very tall order. Um, but I think beyond saying that, 
And, and I'm not saying that uh, uh, military methods should be ruled out. I, I don't say that either. I think the world has got to use uh, all possible means uh, to uh, at least protect those who are at the mercy of superior firepower and also to bring people together and try and see how a solution can be negotiated and God knows so many people around the world are trying. There we are. I think I'll not go beyond that. Mr. Gandhi, we have a question from the radio, someone in the radio listening audience who asks, what is your opinion about the current reservation system in India regarding the untouchables? And that is matched by a question from someone here in the live audience. If you could be Prime Minister of India, how would you approach the problems involved in India's caste system? Well, we have uh, these quotas for uh, so-called untouchables and for other low-caste groups that are not untouchables in India. In, we have these quotas in schools and colleges. We have these quotas in our legislatures, uh, in government jobs. And this has created a tremendous divide across India. And you have one side believing passionately in these reservations and quotas, and the other side uh, very unhappy and very angry about them. Because it also is true that uh, some people in the so-called higher castes who may academically be very good and financially be very uh, in a very poor state, that they are often denied the chance that sometimes goes to somebody else uh, who may not be academically as, as bright. But there again, uh, I suppose what is needed is for both sides to, to dialogue and to see each other's point of view and arrive at some settlement. Uh, you can't just tell one side that you're wrong or tell the other side that they're completely wrong. There are these fierce divisions. It is one of the great uh, uh, tasks. If I were Prime Minister of India I, on this particular issue, I would really encourage serious dialogue, uh, which is not taking place. Both sides are attacking the other side, but are not really talking to the other side. So that would be one, one uh, approach I would have. And uh, on the caste system, we've got to admit this, that we have this hierarchy of castes. We also have uh, this business of not marrying in, into other castes, compartmentalization of castes. Uh, it is slowly breaking down, but not nearly fast enough. And as long as we have this high and low in India, uh, really India will remain in every possible way weak and will have very little to say to the world as a whole. Two related questions. How do you think chauvinistic fundamentalism can be fought and how can religious leaders help to resolve conflicts in the world? Um, chauvinistic fundamentalism is a factor in perhaps all our nations. It certainly is a factor in India and in India's neighborhood and in many countries of the world. Uh, it seems to me that one important thing is for all of us to distinguish between spokespersons for communities and the actual members of those communities. Um, and another important uh, need for us is to distinguish between loving your own people and hating that lot. Uh, we seem to do that so easily, love for our lot so quickly turns to hatred for the other lot. 
I think we must take the, the facts to the people so that they know that the other side isn't as horrible as you think it is. We must also have the courage to admit that our own side is not as perfect as we sometimes claim it is. Um, I, I think the, we must not underestimate the power of the dissemination of facts and truth. We also know that so many courageous people are fighting fundamentalism. We don't hear enough about that. We hear about what the fundamentalists are doing in Algeria or in Iran or in uh, Egypt or other countries. But we don't hear enough about those courageous women and men in all these countries who are fighting, who are Muslims, but who are demonstrating by their courageous fight what Islam really is and can be. I think we've got to spread the word about the fight that these people are putting up. These are some of the measures I would recommend. Thank you. Can you suggest some practical, concrete first steps that I, as a white male, can take to begin breaking down the barriers of race? I think you'll have to do a lot of listening. I think, but I, I'm grateful for that question. I think uh, I want to understand why many Muslims in India are very angry and why many of the so-called untouchables in India are very, very fiercely angry. And the only course for me is to listen to them and find out why they are. And listen and listen and listen and to resist the temptation to identify the errors in what they are saying. And then I think the time will come when they will also say, well, this battle line is also in my heart. And maybe I too have made mistakes, and maybe my people too have made mistakes. I'm absolutely sure that that's going to happen. And if our uh, white males and white females in the United States uh, will go along uh, the spirit of that question, I think those bridges we are seeking are going to be built in this country, or rebuilt in this country. Thank you. Are there any certainties left for you, and if so, what are they? Uh, well, I think I spelled some of them out in my talk. <laughs> Do I look as if a man totally robbed of all his certainties? No. No. I, my certainty is this, that um, in the ultimate analysis, the universe as it is created, and the great force behind that universe is a benevolent force, is a positive force, and a kind and a loving force. The timing of what this force does is mysterious, baffling, sometimes annoying and irritating. But I believe that that force works, and I know this, that every time I play a tiny part in cooperation with that force, not only does my certainty become stronger, hope also returns. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for one last question. Would you tell us, uh, we're interested here in what makes people tick. I think you've just answered that, but uh, if you would say a little bit more about what brings you to this place and in what way do you see yourself as continuing 
what we would call the ministry or the life of your grandfather and in what ways are you different from what he taught? Um, well, my grandfather was a very exceptional character. Uh, I am a very average character. Um, but with great love and great respect, I have some differences with him. Um, you know, some of the things he wrote were written in the context of India's historic battle for freedom. So I take some of them with a pinch of salt. For instance, he wrote in his famous book, Hind Swaraj, which was written in 1909, that Western civilization was essentially immoral and Indian civilization was essentially moral with deep love and respect for my dear grandfather I say that is a sweeping statement I find morality and immorality in Western civilization and in Indian civilization what I would love to have more of, which he had so much of, is the discipline and the dedication and the commitment. He would get up at 3.30 in the morning and he would keep at it and at it and at it and at it. I guess I'm a lazier kind of guy. <laughs> but I'd like to change that. Mr. Gandhi, we thank you for being here. Thank you on behalf of all of us. Before you all go, I just asked uh, Mr. Gandhi's permission to share with you um, that uh, before we came down to the sanctuary in, and were in my office preparing for this, the two of us just had uh, words of prayer, both of us, and uh, I think your response to the question about what religious leaders can do or what religious people can do is to offer prayer for one another and to stand with one another, to listen carefully to one another. And it reminded me of Paul Tillich's, uh, I think, wonderful construct, Paul Tillich, 20th century theologian, who talked about the God with a capital G above God with a small g. And it's that common commitment to the God who is, in fact, God with a capital G, who is bigger than our perceptions or our limitations at any given point in time, which draws us together and commits us to, to helping to build a more civil world in the name of that God. Thank you for being with us today and thank all of you for coming today. <laughs>